If you'll turn with me to Haggai chapter 2, I'm going to read verses 1 through 9. I have the privilege and the, the pleasure to uh, read this passage as our pastor Brian will come up and preach. On the 21st day of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Speak to Zerubbabel, son of Shiltil, governor of Judah, to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people. Ask them, who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like nothing? But now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. And work, for I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. This is what I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt. And my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In a little while, I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations, and, desired, and the desired of all nations will come, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place, I will grant peace, declares the Lord Almighty. And this is God's word. Well, we've been going through a sermon series on uh, the book of Haggai. And, uh, you know, if we're honest, it's something that we actually don't see quite often. Um, you know, it, when, you, when, you, when you think about all the sermons that you may have heard if you've been going to church for some time now, um, if this is your first time checking us out, you know, a sermon series on Haggai is something that you, you know, typically don't see. And, you know, if I had to guess, it's because... It's simply just one of the shorter books of the Bible. It's literally entitled A, a Minor Prophet. But what I want to highlight that this idea of being minor has nothing to do with significance and simply in length. So yes, Haggai may be minor in length, but I'm convinced that there are major implications for you and I. See, because the book of Haggai is all about God's promises. It's all about his promise to his people, even during the most uncertain of times. And how fitting is it not for us to go through this book of Haggai as our society as it is right now, as a whole, is still navigating through uncertain times. See, the book of Haggai, it takes place after what is known as the Babylonian captivity, which takes place in 6th central BC. And this was a time when the Jews were exiled, when they were forced out of their homes, they were placed into slavery, they experienced persecution, they endured injustice, and some had to even experience death. And Haggai, this prophet, taking place post-captivity as they're making their way back. As they return to Jerusalem, yes, they are back home, but not without some permanent scarring of both body and soul. So the book of Haggai, it reminds us of this, 
even though God's people have experienced uncertainty in their lives, it would be through the uncertainty that they experience God's presence because of his promise. And in the same way, this morning, as we go through Haggai chapter 2, we are reminded of what he promises to us, even in all of our uncertainty. So I have three points for us this morning as we look into the promise of God. First point, why do we need God's promise? Secondly, what does God promise us? And thirdly, how does God fulfill this promise? Promise. Let's dive into our first point. Verse 1 says that on the 21st day of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Now, here we're reintroduced to Haggai. And to know who Haggai was, he was a prophet. As Donnie mentioned last week, in ancient times, uh, prophets would often be sent from God to a people. And you want to think about these prophets as uh, prosecuting attorneys who charged God's people whenever they didn't honor God accordingly to what God had actually asked of them. And this message that Haggai brought to God's people, it was no different. See, Haggai, this prophet, he was speaking to God's people specifically after the Babylonian exile. And as God's people came back to Jerusalem, they were commanded to do one thing. And what they were commanded was to rebuild God's temple that was destroyed during exile. Now, the question we want to ask right now is, why the temple? Why was this temple so significant? Here's the reason. The temple, you know, if you were to ask any ancient Israelite to tell you what the most important place on earth was during that time, the clear and consistent answer would always be the temple in Jerusalem. See, the temple was where heaven and earth met. It was the place where the creator God would reside with all of his people. So this temple that we're talking about, this temple that God called uh, his people to rebuild, it was the place of full access. It was the place uh, that represented intimacy with God. It was the place that represented the faithfulness of God. But this temple was in ruins So God caused them to simply rebuild it. But what would we see in chapter 1 as we went over last week? Chapter 1 specifically tells us that upon return, that God's people were essentially a rebellious group. That although they were called to rebuild this temple, chapter 1 tells us that instead of building this temple, instead of uh, living accordingly to their calling, They were building and living in their, what Haggai calls, paneled homes. That's why in chapter 1, verse 4, it says, Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains a ruin? See, the paneled house that Haggai is referring to, what it represented was their immediate security. 
And after uh, going through some hardship, some uncertainty, some of the wilderness, well, they come back, you know, they're tired, they're fatigued, they're weary. After 70 years of uh, complete abandonment, they run to what Haggai calls their paneled houses. Now, up front, when we think about this, it doesn't sound so bad, right? I mean, after a long day of work, pre-COVID, how often would you have to go home and maybe just grab a drink or a meal after a long day and relax? You know, in a sense, there's nothing wrong with that. But you would agree that it would be problematic if you did this every single day and every single moment to the point where you're neglecting your calling as a person within the household. See, what God's people were doing, they were called out by Haggai because this wasn't like this one type of one thing that they did every once in a while. They were neglecting their calling. That in this running away to their immediate security, they neglected the call that God had placed in their lives. In other words, they disobeyed God's commands to rebuild the temple in exchange for their immediate security and comfort, and they ran to their paneled houses. In the same way for you and I, how often are we running to our immediate security? How often, how consumed are we in, wor- in the worry of building our paneled houses rather than trusting and resting in what God has promised us, which is true security? See, for you and I, including this man preaching on the pulpit, there's always something besides God that we run towards for security validation, and purpose. You know, for some of us, it's friendships because we always seek the validation that we're accepted from other people. For some of us, it's our spouses because it represents that future assurance that we would always hope for. You know, for some of us, it's our careers because we know without it, we actually have no real identity. And if I can be honest, some of us often use the church as the primary hub. And you cover it up with your religiosity. And my hope and my prayer is that you are listening right now. So rather than trusting in what God promises his perfect plan for you and I. We always find ourselves trusting in ourselves and only creating our plans for ourselves so that we make sure that those plans fulfill our wants and needs. And friends, I haven't lived the longest life, but what I am slowly starting to see is that when it's always about fulfilling your wants, when it's always about building your paneled houses, I'm convinced that it will always leave you to be more vulnerable to the biggest of disappointments. I can say this about myself. How often I find myself the most discouraged, not because it has anything to do with the calling that God has placed in my life, but because I'm just way too consumed about ministry success and failure. 
goes on and on and on. Seeking the security only that God promises in other things will always leave you to a great discouragement. Look at verse 2 and 3. In verses 2 and 3, Haggai, he uh, alludes to what he calls the remnant of the people. Now, the remnant, the remnant was the remaining, right? It was the remaining of what was left of God's people, specifically uh, ones that were exiled uh, during uh, this Babylonian exile for about 70 years. So in verse 3, Haggai says, God says, who was left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? See, specifically, Haggai is referring to the remnant, to some of the older exiles in the audience who've seen the first temple and who has also seen the rebuilding of the second temple. So when we talk about this remnant, uh, what they're seeing is not just that first temple that was destroyed, but what they're also seeing is this half-finished foundation with no structure above it. Uh, Ezra chapter 3 talks about how the elders that were present at the laying of this, uh, this rebuilding, they wept. They wept at the appearance. They were broken because of what they knew in the past. What does that tell us? See, when there is something in your life as an utmost priority that is not God, you will always be disappointed. You will always be unfulfilled because that, the purpose of that one thing was only to help you see God, not replace him. Relationships aren't meant to be your utmost priority. Your career was not meant to be your utmost priority. Your marriage, your kids, they were not meant to be your utmost priority. Even your religiosity was not meant to be your utmost priority. All of these things are temporary, meaning the security that you think, it only offers you a temporary security. You know, it's the reason why we're always left disappointed. It's the reason why we're always left anxious and fatigued. And my question for you right now, is, if you're hearing anything that I'm saying, is that you would consider that God has promised something much greater, that he promises you a greater security that is everlasting and no uncertainty can ever ever take that away. Because see, without the promise of God, we will always look for something else in this world for a false promise with a temporary sort of security. And it's a great danger, friends, for you're always going to work hard to get it or you'll always be discouraged when you don't have it. So what does God promise us? Look at verse 4 with me. But now be strong, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, Joshua, son of Josedek, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord, and work. For I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. So through Haggai, what we're seeing is God's loving reminder for his people to simply be strong. 
And when we look at the context, I think it's safe for us to say that God is asking his people to be strong in two different ways. Uh, You know, the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 4, he talks about putting off the old and putting on the new when you are a son and daughter of of, of the living God. And this is what we kind of see in Haggai when he says to be strong. Well, number one, God is telling his people to put off the old have the strength to fight against those self-desires of only wanting to build your paneled houses. And secondly, God is telling his people to put on the new, have the strength to endure as you are rebuilding God's temple, to commit to that that calling that God has placed in your life. See, God is all-knowing and all-loving. He knows That if the people of God compare the past glory of the temple with the present ruins, it's going to bring discouragement. But at the same time, the people are called to act based upon the past. In other words, he's saying, don't be discouraged. Because, yeah, even though time and time and time again, you were left astray because of our own desires, But don't be discouraged because it's also the reminder of God's promise that over and over and over again, he's been faithful to you. That even in our disobedience to God, when you come to him in a godly submission, it actually becomes a distinctive of knowing who he is and what he actually promises to you. His faithfulness, his love upon you. Now, I know we, as we hear that and we hear these loving words from the God Almighty, I am with you, I, I want us to kind of slow down a little bit. And I, this is where I'm going to challenge the congregation because I really think that if not careful, if we just take this just like at a, a brief glance of, you know, God is with me, it's actually really taking away what God's actually trying to say to us in this passage. What do I mean? Because in this verse... Yes, God says, for I am with you. But what follows is extremely important and as simple as the term, the phrase entitled Lord Almighty. Here's why. The more literal translation of the Lord Almighty is the Lord of hosts. The word host is a translation of a Hebrew word meaning armies. And when we talk about armies, it's a reference to the angelic armies of heaven. So another word of saying the Lord Almighty is the Lord of hosts. And if I had to break that down one more time, it means God is the army. God is a God of the armies of heaven heaven. In other words, this is simply war language. God is saying, yes, I am with you, but I am with you in the battle. Yes, I am with you, but I am with you in the war against your own heart. I am with you in the spiritual warfare that is yourself. I am with you, commanding you to fight against your own desires for paneled houses. And the problem is this. We always want a God that is with us. But if we're honest, how often are we not willing to confront our own idols? In fact, most of us can barely identify what they actually are. 
We live powerless lives in the sense that we don't have the faith to confront our own sin. We don't have the confidence to confront our own idols that consumes us. So often at times we can't really experience God's promise for us when we aren't even willing to submit ourselves to him. We can't experience God's redemptive work in our lives if we aren't willing to acknowledge that there are some areas in your life that need to experience some real warfare when you have a God that is with you and wants to conquer and kill and to battle against that sin in your heart. And that is what God is saying. I am with you. I'm with you. So you can fight against those idols, against those desires for your paneled houses. I'm with you so you can be strong and to fight against your idolatrous ways. Be strong and to remember what God is calling you to. God promises us that he is with us. And we need his promise because without it, we're always left to our own demise. Do you see that? That how often are we so powerless to confront our own sin? And if that's you right now, can't just leave you where you are right now because this passage tells us uh, this great promise. He tells you that you're not alone in it, that you can fight, you can, you can pray through it, you can, seek, you can have the boldness to seek counsel from others about your sin, and you can receive that counsel with boldness because we know that God fulfills his promise. That's our third and final point. Look at verses 5 and 6 with me. This is what I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, and my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. I want to unpack this just a little bit because what the word that kind of highlights when we read verse 5 and 6 is he says covenanted. What do I mean by covenant? At the most basic level, a covenant is an oath-bound relationship between two or more parties You know, you want to think about marriage as kind of the most relevant example to what a covenant is. And what we see in the Bible is that there is a divine covenant that God, he would sovereignly establish this relationship with his people through a covenant. I will be your God and you will be my people. So what we see throughout scripture There's biblical covenants, right, that they would be like this unifying thread of God's saving grace for his people. But what we see is that time after time again, there's persistent failure on the side of man, right, that God is saying, I will be your God, but how often we're not being his people. There's always persistent failure and living accordingly to what God has covenanted uh, with us, and we're always failing those requirements. And what that does is it always leads to inevitable disaster. That's why we're seeing this destroyed temple. This is why we saw the Babylonian exile. And yes, in some sense, that should have spelled the end for God's people. 
But God is always with us, and God knows this. So in light of a covenant, what does God do? He says that he would offer us a new covenant, one that would be both continuous and discontinuous with what was of the past. Look at Jeremiah 31, verse 31. I'll read it for you. Jeremiah says that the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. And centuries later, we will see that all of God's covenantal promises that he will be with us and that we would be his people, all of those things would be realized in and through God's son, Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 15 tells us, for the reason Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. Friends, the reason why you and I can be confident that God will always covenant with us is because of Jesus Christ as the mediator of this new covenant. And that Jesus Christ fulfilled this covenant perfectly. And so we can now be confident that God's promise is fulfilled, that he is always with us in warfare, and he will never leave us astray. But why? Because on the cross, he went through the greatest amount of warfare as he went through the a biggest amount of pain and suffering that we deserved, but he was nailed on the cross, broken and battered. It was on the cross. He went through the ultimate isolation as he was stripped away from his father, even though he remained perfectly obedient. But why? Why would he do this? Well, God was all by himself so that we received the promise that he is always with us. God's spirit abandoned Christ so that the spirit could be, remain among you and I. He experienced the ultimate nightmare, which is complete isolation, so that we would have to never fear that we are alone. And beloved, when we believe that God fulfilled this promise in the person and work of Jesus Christ, there's nothing to fear that in your life, in all of the sin and the sorrow, of all of the pain and suffering, you have nothing to fear. The gospel reminds us that we are way worse than we actually fear. That's true. But it's the gospel that also reminds us we are more accepted than we could ever hope for. So how do we apply this text today? Look at verse 9 with me. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place, I will grant peace, declares the Lord Almighty. 
where do we see is that uh, in verse 7, 8, talks about a shaking and a quakening, that there's going to be a day to come. But as the day approaches, there's also in verse 9 that there's going to be this greater house, right? And it's going to be filled with uh, God's riches, right? Greater than all of the gold and the silver that we ever dreamed of. But verse 9 specifically stands out because he says it's in this place that he will grant peace, See, verse 9, it reminds us that even in the most difficult set of circumstances that you and I may experience on uh, this side of life, there is always a peace and a perseverance that we can experience today. See, the one thing we want to highlight and one thing we could take away in light of everything that we read is that God provides us with a greater peace. And that this peace that I'm referring to as we look at Haggai chapter 1 and 2 is that peace is always, it never depends on the situation, right? That's what we always say. Peace is never based on circumstances because there's always going to be situations and circumstances. So what peace really comes from is really about the disposition of your heart. See, as Haggai reminds us, there's always going to be uncertainty. There's always going to be unknowns. But In light of the peace that God offers, what do you run to? Are you always seeking answers through a changed circumstance or a change of heart? And that's kind of the application that I do want to hit home as we begin to land this plane. One practical way of applying this text in light of a godly peace for you and I is by exploring, acknowledging, and killing those over desires, the paneled houses in your heart, the idolatry that consumes you, those inordinate longings, those overly emotional attachments to, attachments to those things that are causing more anxiety than peace. And that's the application for us today. That's the question you want to ask. All right, I, want, I know that God offers a peace, but for us to go to that peace, just as Haggai called the Israelites, you got to go through war. You got to fight some battles. You got a lot of mess that you got to take care of. You got to know what those paneled houses are in your life. So, yeah, know that God offers a greater peace. But you got to know what brings you great anxiety. What is that for you? What is that paneled house? And this one's for free. Once you find out what that paneled house is, you're going to go to someone and be like, hey, I think this is my paneled house. I think I really overvalue this thing in my life. Do you agree? That's the the conversation. That's how it should start. And let that be a conversation. Let it be a transformation through prayer and repentance and people so that you can really understand this peace and you experience it through war. And you experience with the band of brothers and sisters as next to you to fight. What God reminds us is that all that we yearn for in this life is something we already possess because of Jesus Christ. And until that day, of, until we see that day in fullness, you know, my hope, uh, my prayer for all of us is that you would live your life accordingly to what he has already promised rather than our pursuits. 
Would you join me in prayer this morning?